Please join me in prayer for God to illumine our hearts and minds. Let us pray. Guide us, O God, by your word and Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover peace. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. <coughs> Excuse me. Our first scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, verses 22 through 34. Listen to God's word for us. <clears throat> then they brought Jesus to the place called Gol- Golgotha, which means the place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his clothes among them, casting lots to decide what each should take. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two bandits, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by derided him, shaking their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priest, along with the scribes, were also mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross now so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also taunted him. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. At three o'clock, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means... My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading this morning is Psalm 22, and we continue our study of the Psalms this summer. Listen again to God's word for us. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me in the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you are ancestors trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not human, scorned by others and despised by the people. All who see me mock at me. They make mouths at me. They shake their heads. Commit your cause to the Lord. Let him deliver. Let him rescue the one in whom he delights. Yet it was you who took me from the womb. You kept me safe on my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth. And since my mother bore me, you have been my God. 
do not be far from me. For trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls encircle me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. The, they, they open wide their mouths at me. Like a ravening, ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs are all around me. A company of evildoers encircles me. My hands and my feet have shriveled. I can count all of my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among themselves and form my clothing. They cast lots. But you, O oh Lord, do not be far away. O oh, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. From the horns of wild oxen, you have rescued me. I will tell of your name to my brothers and sisters in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he did not despise or abhor the affliction of the afflicted. He did not hide his face from me, but heard when I cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will pay before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over all the nations. To him indeed shall all who sleep in the earth bow down. Before him shall bow down all who go down into the dust, and I shall live for him. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord and proclaim his deliverance to a people yet unborn, saying that he has done it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me again in prayer. Gracious Lord, the preaching of your word with the blessing of your spirit, grant that insofar as it is true, it shall be undergirded by your power and by your love. Grant that insofar as it is false, it shall be swiftly forgotten and do no harm. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Psalm 22 is a lament psalm. And as we heard this morning from Cheryl, it's one that's echoed and proclaimed painfully in Christ's final moments on the cross. 
in this psalm, Psalm 22 of David, David is lamenting not simply that he's surrounded by enemies, surrounded like bulls and raving lions, threatening to undo and completely devour him. It's not only that he's surrounded, but also that he's humiliated and mocked by them, given his impotence before them and his apparent lack of aid, his abandonment from God. In this psalm, as in so many lament psalms, David is crying out viscerally, God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me for dead? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you don't answer. By night, but find no rest. Psalm 22's cry of abandonment is also deeply personal. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As Pastor Choi noted two weeks ago in her sermon, the Psalter includes a huge number of laments like this. And these kinds of psalms unleash raw emotions of grief, loss, anger, frustration, and fear. Yet these psalms are also rooted in a faith that God is actually listening, that God does care, that God will act. Psalm 22 has one of the most dramatic swings, most dramatic swings in that direction towards that faith. It's in the midst of his crying out to God that David recalls and proclaims that God is the one in whom his ancestors trusted and whom God did not disappoint but delivered. David recalls as well that God is the one who brought him forth into life from his mother's womb. At the end of the psalm, David affirms trust in God and looks forward to the day when he will be in the congregation of God's faithful, able to testify and to bear witness to the way in which God has delivered him and saved him from this trial. And he presses this proclamation about God's salvation even further by saying that not only will his fellow Israelites praise God, but all the nations will praise God about this kind of deliverance. Verse 27 reads, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over all the nations. This idea of worldwide worship has echoes in other psalms that talk about nations streaming to Jerusalem to praise God. This worldwide outreach also has deep roots in God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 that In Abraham and Israel, all the families of the earth earth shall be blessed. But in Psalm 22, David goes even further than that, saying that praise for God's salvation and deliverance will not only extend geographically across all nations and all peoples, but also will extend across all time, with both future generations yet to be born, as well as those who have already died, all praising God. Verse 29, to him indeed shall all who sleep in the earth bow down. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. And then in verse 30 and 31, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord and proclaim his deliverance to a people yet unborn, saying, 
that he has done it. It's important to note that this reference there to those who sleep in the earth, those who have died worshiping the Lord, it is an unusual one for the Psalms. Also unusual is the swing, given that the praise from the dead, the praise from those who yet to be born, all proclaiming trust in God's salvation, praise for what God has done, all of this part of David's hope for what God will do for him. That is a massive swing in this psalm. But that move again to faith, even in the midst of times of trial, is a staple of lament psalms. As biblical scholar Jim Mays puts it in lament psalms like this, quote, though the afflicted may be helpless, they are not hopeless. It's perhaps not surprising then that we see the words of psalms on Jesus' lips when he's on the cross. The Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark note Jesus' cry of abandonment, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Again, a direct phrase from Psalm 22, to which we'll return in a moment. But Luke's gospel also recounts Jesus' recitation of Psalm 31, verse 5. Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. And John's gospel highlights Jesus' enactment of Psalm 69, in which the psalmist's tormentors give him vinegar instead of water to drink. Jesus' invocation of the Psalms throughout the Gospels in that moment on the cross, it makes sense given how the Psalms have served in Jesus' time and throughout the millennia as models for prayer. And when you pray the Psalms regularly, they become part of your being. As with any activity like learning a language or learning a sport or learning an instrument, the more time you spend with it, the more that it will shape the way you think and you feel and you act and you respond. The more time you devote to an activity, whether it's praying the Psalms or any other activity, the more it predisposes you to act almost reflexively so that you will hit a ball or hit the right note or hit the right word at just the right moment without even having to think about it. I imagine on the note of the Psalms that each of us might similarly have verses that resonate with you, especially, and spring to mind in certain occasions, certain situations. Holding a newborn baby, you may have found yourself thinking in line with Psalm 139, how fearfully and wonderfully made, how wonderful are your works, Lord. Embarking on a new venture, you may have found yourself saying, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. In the midst of a deep loss, you may have lifted up Psalm 23, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Or on a wedding day, you may have suddenly felt Psalm 118, This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. At a glorious sunrise, you may have found the words elicited from you from Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Or even when just gathered around the dining room table with family, you may have found yourself praying Psalm 133, how very good and pleasant it is when kindred live together in unity. 
knowing and praying the Psalms can get into your bones, shaping your perspective, your actions, your words. And that embodiment of the Psalms was displayed throughout Christ's life and ministry, but especially in his words on the cross. Jesus, in the midst of the rejection, the ridicule, and the sorrow of his betrayal, arrest, and crucifixion, he responds with the language of the Psalms. Surrounded by Roman soldiers, mocked and rejected by his own people, Jesus prays, he says, the Psalms. And Psalm 22 was particularly apt. As we've noted, the apparent lack of salvation and deliverance that David is expressing in Psalm 22. That lack of apparent deliverance from God, it's what is fueling and driving the derision and the laughter at David. In verses 7 and 8 of Psalm 22, it reads, All who see me mock at me. They make mouths at me. They shake their heads. Commit your cause to the Lord. Let him deliver. Let him rescue the one in whom he delights. And then likewise, around the cross of Jesus, people ridiculed him, and they ridiculed his apparent impotence, as well as his claim to messiahship, saying, he saved others, and he can't save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross now, so that we may see and believe. As we know, the Romans crucified people And the reason they crucified people was to make them a horrifying, humiliating public symbol to anyone who might try to oppose Roman rule, Roman dominance. Like lynching in our own history, the purpose of the cross was to deter, to subdue people through terror and horrific spectacle, but also one that was completely and utterly humiliating to the person being crucified. And along this line, the sign above Christ's cross, which read, the king of the Jews. That sign was likewise Roman mockery of Jesus, as well as the Jewish people as a whole. It was intended to ridicule the ministry of a man who had come proclaiming the good news of God's reign. While Jesus had healed and taught with authority in Jerusalem and the countryside for three years, now he was nailed to the cross. And that seemed to make a joke of the good news. From the perspective of the cross, it seems unbelievable, foolish, that God's kingdom is near, or that Jesus in any way represents it. It seems foolish that it could bring anyone to remember and turn to the Lord, rather than to remember and turn in submission to Rome, to the power of violence and cruelty. And it was precisely Jesus' ministry, his call for everyone to love God with all their heart, soul, and might, to love their neighbor as themselves, that had led Jesus headlong into a conflict with the authorities, authorities of a Roman system built on domination rather than service, on the love of possession and power and prestige rather than the love of God and neighbor. The cross flowed directly as a consequence of Christ's prophetic resistance against things like Roman rule. And the cross was a searing symbol and an instrument of 
sin. Jesus was betrayed and hung up on a cross. Not because he was a passive victim, but because he was beckoning people to embrace God and their neighbors. He was calling out the empty futility of wealth. He was calling out the vanity of praise and prestige. He was calling out the abuse of power. These are the reasons that he was killed by the Romans. And yet there's more going on with Christ than simply someone standing up for what is right and suffering spiteful abuse for it. If that was all that was happening on the cross and through Christ's life and ministry, then the words of Frederick Buechner, quote, like Socrates, Thomas More, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, Martin Luther King Jr., and so on, Jesus was simply another saintly victim of the wickedness and folly of humankind. And the cross is a symbol of ultimate defeat. Brothers and sisters, there's something even deeper and more profound that occurred in and through Christ's life and his death on his cross, on the cross. It was, in part, his prophetic stand against sin. But there's also a rich array of scriptural verses and passages that seek to put language around what that bigger thing was. As we know, that larger thing was Christ's saving act on our behalf. And in scripture, it's described in a variety of ways. It's described as the payment of a ransom that frees and redeems us from slavery to sin. It's described as a precious, selfless act of sacrifice that atones for our sins. It is described as a dominating victory over death and the powers and principalities of evil. It is described as suffering and punishment for our trespasses so that we might be reconciled to God. It is described as the act of a healing physician who takes the illness of sin upon himself. Christ's crucifixion was not just a stand against injustice. It was our salvation unto eternity. It was God coming incarnate as Christ and bearing our sins for us. Theologian Shirley Guthrie weaves together a few of the different types of images we were just noting and weaves together the power of what we have in our salvation in Christ when he writes the following, noting the ways in which Christ is both our Savior and our judge. Guthrie writes, The judge looks over the desk at us, and he pronounces the death sentence. But the death of Christ for us means that the judge then goes around to the other side of the desk to accept the sentence on behalf of those who deserve it. The judge rules with harsh, uncompromising justice that the debt to the law and order must be paid. And then the judge pays the fine. The holy God thunders that a sacrifice must be made to atone for human sin and then makes a self-sacrifice. Each way that our salvation in Christ is described in Scripture entails God taking on our sin, 
taking on its consequences so that we might be freed to love God and our neighbor fully and eternally. In the words of theologian Daniel Migliore, quote, In Jesus Christ, God takes the sin, the hatred, the violence of the world into God's own being and extinguishes them there. Now, the resurrection of Christ and the transformative power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, these are things that testify to the ultimate extinguishing of sin. We clearly, in our lives, still see and experience smoldering embers, horrific flare-ups of sin this side of Christ's return. But as many have noted, Christ's victory over sin, it's similar to D-Day 75 years ago. And the ways in which the decisive battle is won, even if there remains work to do. Work to proclaim, work to preach, work to live into God's kingdom and faith, hope, and love. Now, Paul sums all of this up uh, in his famous passage from his second letter to the Corinthians as follows. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us so that we are ambassadors for Christ, Since God is making his appeal through us, we entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In the words of Psalm 22, sisters and brothers, God has done it. And let us all be about the business of remembering and turning to the Lord in joy in response. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen.